0: Aloha, mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It is Monday, October 23rd. I'm Catherine Cruz. We get the latest on little fire ants on the Big Island. It's where we are told they were first discovered 24 years ago and the surprising places where cases have been reported. We move into the second week of classes for those campuses affected by the Maui wildfires. We hear from the Deputy Superintendent for Operations in our public schools. We talk Maui mortgages and the push for banks to give homeowners a break. And behind the headlines of Domestic Violence Month, when not even the police department is immune. This is a Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Well, this may be the high season for scary stuff, but our next story may have you looking in more places than just over your shoulder. We take you to the Big Island, where we get a snapshot of where an invasive species has been found and is spreading. We're talking about the little fire ant. Franny Brewer is with the Invasive Species Council that covers Hawaii County.
1: Little fire ants are widespread on the Big Island. They are present in every district and certainly around residential areas, areas where you find a lot of people, you're going to find little fire ants. There there are very few pockets of places left that don't have little fire ants. There have been places that have been keeping it out, like the National Park, um, you know, that have been really working hard to inspect everything coming into the park, make sure that that trucks equipment are not bringing ants in right that's how they get moved Um, but you'd be hard-pressed in most residential areas uh, to find a place that, that doesn't have little fire ants at this point it's just little lucky pockets
0: right now well that's really disheartening I mean I remember doing something on the story where I think somebody was sitting on their sofa and they got stung and you're thinking oh my goodness it's in people's homes
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They are mostly outside ants and so they'll spend most of their time in vegetation, but um, they're looking for water. Most people start to notice them in their houses when they, they show up in the bathroom, sometimes the kitchen as they're coming in, you know, kind of on the water sources looking for water. And they will certainly move into a house when they take over. They take over every square inch. They, they, they don't, you know, they're not patchy. You know, once they spread into an area, if they come into your backyard, they will, if your house is in the way between, you know, the next backyard, they're just going to cover that area too and like, keep going. That's really, um, that's how they've evolved is to sort of take over large areas by having lots of little nests. And forming a very large matrix, if you could think of it as as a big web with a lot of little knots all throughout, little knots are the queens and everything else. They're they're just going to cover with uh,
0: worker ants. No, you're really scaring me. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> well, it's <I'm>, Halloween. <laughs> I know, but I guess the reality of these invasive species, because you don't, you know, you don't hear about it all the time, and and yet. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's like that campaign that you folks wage, right? This uh, silent mm-hmm. invasion. So, you know, unfortunately, the Big Island, you know, I think was the first to get Cokey Frog and, and, and look at where we're at with that, you know, and now, you know, Little Red Fire Ant and, and it's spreading to other islands. So, so that is pretty scary.
1: It is. It's really scary. And I, I you know, I, I live here, I live in Puna, which is the you know first place where it was found. And certainly, you know, we deal with it. One of the nice things, you know, to, to kind of take the edge off the fear, at least for those who, who of us who are living on the big island, is that they are treatable, at least in your in your area. So if you're vigilant and you stay on top of it, you can make sure that your property is LFA free, right? You can control them in your environment by widespread uh, trying to take care of it is is much more challenging
0: well I think on the big island because you are the big island and you've got you know large swaths of forests and and if these things are up in a remote area in trees or in areas where you can't beat it back uh, I mean we, we were very encouraged you know to hear the update from um, the Maui committee to see that they're making some progress we would love to beat it back down uh, in, in those areas in Pune
1: yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, Puna is very unique, I think, in the state of Hawaii because throughout Pune, you have a lot of um, agricultural lands overlapping with residential areas, overlapping with forests, right? And you don't necessarily, you know, a um, place like Oahu that's a lot more defined between, like, where those areas are. And in Pune, they're all on top of each other. So th- that's where you get a lot of this movement. Um, you know, a lot of our remote, you know, watershed areas on the Big Island are pretty high up in the mountains. Those remain fire ant-free because there aren't a lot of people moving stuff into those areas. Where you really see the spread of fire ants is where a lot of humans are going and where a lot of human stuff is. So um, Puna is unfortunately more affected and the forests in Puna are more at risk because of that proximity with humans and human movement and human stuff.
0: That's interesting. Okay, so we've got to mm-hmm. look at it uh, in, with that lens
1: Mhm exactly that's that's how they get moved around and I think with nahiku on Maui it was probably a lot related to the river, right They can actually float uh they can form little rafts so on fresh water so they they and even on salt water because we've had uh surfers over here who have been stung uh in the surf, so they're they're very adaptable and uh very good at working with the environment. So what we do see even here, especially during the rainy season, is that they will move from areas, you know, if there's a residential area that's higher up on a on a slope they will actually come down on water into people's yards that maybe had already cleared and got rid of their fire ants. And now they have, after the rains come, they'll have a new infestation
0: of fire ants because you see this movement of the of the ants uh, on water and with water. Okay, but I'm going to pause you here because I'm thinking surfers are getting stung in the ocean. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. horrid. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's not a pleasant experience for them at all. (laughs) They they do not like it. Um, but yes, they're they're able to float. They uh one of the things that we tell people, you know, people trying to protect their pets, right, at home, they will find little fire ants going into their pets' food bowls and we tell people you create a moat of water, but you have to make sure that water is soapy because you need to break the water tension. The ants are so small and so light that they can actually form a raft that floats on the water. So,
0: yeah, very tricky little species. Okay, so what kind of a snapshot can you paint for us as to where the high infestations are there on the Big Island?
1: Certainly throughout Puna um, and Hilo districts, we have high infestations. That North Hilo, Hamakua Coast, there's a lot of gulches and because there's so much housing that's sort of on the edge of those gulches, a lot of those have now filled in with fire ants. So you will see a lot of those houses being affected along those coasts as well. They're, you know, I would say Kau is probably the least affected, but we absolutely have them, certainly in areas of high population like Pahala and Na'alehu. You will definitely find little fire ants because, again, wherever you're finding people, that's where you're finding little fire ants. It's throughout the island.
0: And then, okay, we've got a situation too where where maybe these things are being moved around with nursery plants, right? So if Big sure. Island farmers uh, send stuff off to Oahu or Kauai or Maui mm-hmm. that you know they might hitchhike on there.
1: Absolutely, yeah, they're hitchhiker ants. That's exactly what they're called uh, for a reason. Um, they're very small and they're very hard to detect with the naked eye. Um, a lot of times, people get stung by them and say oh, I didn't even, I couldn't even see it. I couldn't even see what was stinging me. Like, that's how small they are, right? So unless you're actively testing for them and putting a peanut butter stick in that potted plant to see if it comes up with ants, it's going to be really difficult for people to just spot it with the naked eye and say, oh yeah, no, there's ants in that. So we've seen movement, and not just on potted plants. We've seen movement off of the big island. You know, one of the first infestations on Maui was through uh, roofing tiles, equipment, cars. They move around in cars. If A car's been sitting for a few weeks and high grass. You know, people go to the mainland, they come back. It could be inside the wheel wells. It could be inside the engine. Mechanics have reported working on cars and the fire ants are falling down on them from inside the engine. So, you know, they are very, again, very adaptable and they can move in a lot of things and so to to only look at stuff like potted plants would also be limiting in that you would not necessarily be spotting every potential place a nest could be.
0: I know. When I buy plants, I try and isolate my plants to make sure there are no hitchhikers. But I've got to kind of broaden my, I guess, my fear zone. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. definitely but.
1: doing it right. Absolutely. We, we recommend people create a quarantine area for any plants or plant materials that are coming into their area, but we also, you know, we have an education program. We're working with community members, and we try to get people to think about all the things that they're bringing onto their property, and, you know, beyond just little fire ants, there's, seeds, you know, of invasive plants, there's all kinds of other things you could, you know, slugs for that, that can carry rat longworm. So we're, you know, think about where things are coming from, you know, when you're bringing something onto your property, um, maybe isolate it, maybe do a good inspection. Certainly with materials, we say, if, if you're buying a car that's been sitting for a while, think about putting that car in a, in a quarantine zone, right? You can use a commonly available uh, pesticide that you can buy at Target. You can create a quarantine area for yourself, and then you can use those peanut butter sticks to test whatever you're bringing in, any potting material, any equipment, you can use the peanut butter sticks and give it a half an hour and say, okay, did, a, did something turn up on these peanut butter sticks? Give it another half hour. And okay. Like at least I'm doing some kind of work to prevent you know as best i can prevent those little pests from
0: sneaking into my property right because you can spot the ant we can stop the ant
1: that's the hope that's the hope
0: yeah well as we speak now uh i just got a thing that popped up in my email coconut rhinoceros beetle grubs found on hawaii island
1: yeah that that <laughs> that's been my week <laughs> so yeah That's why I was like, oh, I'm having quite a week this week. Unfortunately, yes, coconut rhinoceros beetle has been found uh, on the west side of the big island. And it's, it's very, that's very worrisome because that is a pest that we know has caused significant damage in Guam. It's causing significant damage on Oahu. And it's just one more pest that the big island now has to contend with. We've already got more than our fair share. So this is, this is not uh,
0: welcome news. Okay. All right. Well, Franny anywhere, thank you so much for your time and for kind of elevating our consciousness about these invasive species. We'll continue looking at uh, the other islands. But thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for spreading the word and, and keeping everybody vigilant.
0: And that was Randy Brewer talking about the snapshot of little fire ant infestations on the Big Island. We spoke with her on Friday just as agricultural officials announced that another pest, the coconut rhinoceros beetle, has been found in Waikoloa. Call or click to protect Hawaii. Call 643-PEST or go to 643pest.org. <laughs>
2: Tensions are high not only in Israel and Gaza, but across the region, as fear of the conflict spilling over is growing.
1: Definitely, there is a fear that this kind of war, if it gets deeper, bloodier, is going to engender a multi-front
3: war. And
0: then we are going to be in uncharted territory. The risk of a wider regional war and how to prevent it. That's on the next On Point.
3: Beginning this afternoon at 2 following The Daily. Support for HPR comes from
1: the Arne and Ruth Wurchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Wurchick Master's of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com. 瑞光不安无明,
0: Students and teachers from three public schools affected by the Maui wildfires are starting their second week back in session. We connected with Kurt Otaguro, the Deputy Superintendent for Operations, Friday afternoon. It's been no easy task preparing for the return of thousands of students after the disaster. He recalled how education officials were monitoring the wildfires when they first broke out.
3: As soon as the wildfires did start we were tracking and then the high winds and so our responsibility is to track that and when all of that happened we had to do a quick assessment and from that point we continued on for the last couple months.
0: Yeah and you know we've just come off this week with the (laughs) kids in Maui returning to the classroom. What's been the report back from the field?
3: Well thankfully I was able to go on Wednesday To see the elementary schools open and it was just a blessing to see everybody back in school i know we published some numbers the other day as in terms of enrollment and who showed up i thought it was very positive i thought that of the entire 3001 students that didn't enroll previously but the way i look at it is 98 percent actually enrolled back in school they're attending a school now whether it was public school a private school obviously some families had to relocate a different island or state, and so. But if you look at it in totality, we, we had 98 percent of our students attending school, which to me is very positive. So that was the first thing, and and and, uh, and, and to see their, their reactions, to see their friends, and so it was gratifying just to see that on Wednesday for me personally, and of course we had video and, and things of that sort where we saw the high school and our superintendent attending that day. Opening day for the high school. So it's been, it's been gratifying to see it all come together because the objective was to get our students back into an environment that they're comfortable with.
0: Yes, we've got to begin the healing, and this was a traumatic event, and we've just got to we've got to help each other get through this and move forward.
3: Yes, and you know I, I have to say I, I commend our superintendent Hayashi as the as our leader. Um, he stepped in right from the get go and got all of us involved, he committed to the governor that we would form a emergency leadership team made up of himself personally and the and deputy superintendents and assistant superintendents just to support our complex area superintendents, Rebecca Winky and Desiree Side. So Rebecca Winky is the Lahaina Luna Complex Area Superintendent. And so she needed a lot of support and you know, things like unfortunately these kinds of events Sure, we're so thankful that the community came together, the nonprofits came together, county, state, all the agencies within the state all came together just to to help in whatever way they could. And so we're grateful for the collaboration of everyone. It's not just the DOE opening a school; it took a lot of different people to get to that point. And so we're very appreciative of that.
0: Well, I think too, people think, oh, school, yeah, back in the classroom, but you know, you also have to think about feeding the students, right? All those pieces come together so that there's lunch on the table.
3: Yeah, and so we, you know, there was a lot of things going on. One was just the facility itself and assessment of structure And repair of those structures. The second was, as we did restart school in a a temporary location, transportation became a priority, uh, getting the buses, and we're already having a bus driver uh, challenge with shortage of bus drivers. But again, Maui came together, our contractors came together and provided whatever buses they could provide, and so that was gratifying. And then, yes, we had to feed them. And so our food services individuals and our uh, USDA partners uh, was able to send very quickly, I, I guess we call it shelf-stable food, subsidized by the USDA, just to get it started. And we were able to distribute that to to just about any student, uh, free of charge, just to get it started because the schools were closed, so kitchens were closed. And from that point, we had distance learning in the Mapele area, and so that, again, no kitchen at, a, at the churches, but we were able to provide uh, at least a snack. For the, for the students uh, attending distance learning. But yeah, it, it, it became a whole village, uh, not to mention all of our private sector contractors who helped us to rebuild and, and find tents and, and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, lots of moving parts. So it, it's a like you say, it took a whole village to kind of pull this off this first week. And and I know at the at the board meeting, you know, the, the members were asking about follow up to the 500 or so kids that that didn't show up. But, you know, I imagine that that's all part of the process.
3: That's correct. So we'll continue. Uh, thanks to Deputy Superintendent uh, Tammy Oyatomori Chun. She is on it. She is a head of our strategy, along with Deputy Superintendent Heidi Armstrong in charge of academics. So thankfully they have a good handle on outreach to the parents to get the students communicated and that that was the biggest challenge in the very beginning how do you even communicate with families
0: I know there are families that are concerned about the air quality you know the ash and you have um monitors going you know HEPA filters that kind of thing when when we talked to to Governor Green he said look I would send my children back you know in that environment so so he felt assured that the kids were we're gonna be safe.
3: That's correct. I mean, you know, one one thing that Superintendent Hayashi prides himself on is data, data-driven decisions. Uh, we don't wing it. And so he was very adamant about us heading the proper tests, doing our own soil testing, to, but to be confirmed by experts in the Department of Health, checking the water sources with the County of Maui, And then of course with the EPA and the Department of Health again on the Clean Air Branch, to ensure that we have checked it, double-checked it, triple-checked it, and then on an ongoing basis have the tools necessary to monitor. So I'm, I'm also very confident that we've created an environment at this point where it's safe to return.
0: And so what is your greatest need right now as we move into the second week?
3: That's a good question. You know, to sustain the school year now is going to be all hands on deck. The first week, I'm sure there's a lot of emotion in both fashions. We're going to need to assure the parents that it continues to be safe. I know there's a lot of concern with the dioxins and and hazmat and the tests that came back from Kula, but you know we're working very closely with the Department of Health as well as FEMA to understand what they're doing uh, in the Lahaina zone, and so we'll we'll continue to be on top of that, and that, that's a state and county. Uh, priority, and so we're confident that we'll we'll continue to do that to create that safe environment. And that's probably our biggest challenge now. As things occur, there's going to be a lot of emotions. So our job is to ensure and instill that confidence, and also have a remediation plan, uh, which we've worked very hard at. And um, you know, plans we we've had them, emergency action plans, and uh, this disaster has taught us uh, a lot about how to make things more practical. And it's what a plan is, right? A plan is always to be updated and revised and improved. And so that's what we're working
0: on. Yeah, besides just being in the classroom, if the need arises and you need to get out of Dodge right away, you know, that you can you can get out safely.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the wildfire also showed us that, you know, heretofore it's been a building is on fire and as so you evacuate out of a building, uh, in a wildfire it's first probably priority is to shelter in place and to get to a, a place where we have the proper filtration and things of that nature now as we track it and the county or the civil defense declares something different then the evacuation plan would occur and so we're grateful to department of transportation to help us create that access emergency access plan route uh, from lahaina luna high school to the lahaina bypass these are all good things
0: yeah, all things to keep us safe.
3: Funding for the disaster is a work in progress. You know, the state is working with the Council on Revenues to see what the new projections are going to be and what kind of economic turn our state will face, first of all. Uh, we know that Maui County is in a difficult position with... Um, less tourists. Now I just saw they're going to rightfully so, but waive property taxes. And so funding to sustain our recovery is going to be a challenge. Now, thankfully FEMA has stepped in and um, President Biden came to town and gave us that commitment. So it's just a matter of us as the government agencies now to follow up and make sure that we can work with our federal partners to help us.
0: Have we applied for funds related to the disaster to rebuild the schools? Regarding the schools, the
3: the short answer is yes. We've put in a request for assistance to build a temporary school. Uh, We're lucky that FEMA, well, through our HAIMA, Hawaii Emergency Management uh, Agency, approved it. FEMA approved it and assigned that project as a temporary school to the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So we have a temporary site located in West Maui. It's up to bid now, and so we hope that it could be built within Five to six months. I would, I would hope, if not sooner.
0: But then what? But then what about a, a permanent?
3: Okay, so the permanent school will go down a different path. It's called a request for public assistance, and so FEMA has guided us as to how to start that process. In that space, it'll be a little more complex, since um, the combination of funding will come from state insurance. We have a policy that covers property uh, damage, and so the, the, we will get an appraisal. On what we lost in Lahaina Town with King Kamehameha III Elementary School, and then FEMA will step in after that. And so those plans I have are only in the very infant, infant stage just now, but we plan to pursue that actively now
2: because
0: okay. we
3: do need a permanent school.
0: There is just so much to be done, but, but this at least is is, is the start and where we're at. Anything else on that front
3: with regard to the school? I just mm-hmm. wanna, I, I want to personally thank parents they've been um, while we have parents that are concerned we have a lot of parents that have been supportive and uh, we appreciate their trust in, in the Department of Education and uh, on behalf of Superintendent Hayashi we just want to say that we'll continue to do our best to make sure that the environment is safe first and foremost and um, that we're, we're going to be proactive in ensuring that as school is in session our students are, are as safe as possible
0: And it does take a village. Uh, That was the message from DOE's Kurt Otagaro, Deputy Superintendent for Operations in our public schools, talking about what it took to get our, our Maui keiki back in class. We residents who lost their properties in the fire are worried about being able to pay their mortgages. Some have also lost their jobs, and they may need more of a break than what's available for disasters like this. HBR's Cassie Donio joins us today. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Catherine. So in a time of uncertainty after the August 8th wildfires, some Lahaina owners have been feeling anxious and worried about their home loans. And as you mentioned too, they not only lost their homes, they lost their jobs too, and you need jobs to also pay for your home loans. Some local banks have already taken the lead by offering um, mortgage forbearances to homeowners on Maui. And what uh, mortgage forbearances are, it's a temporary pause on monthly payments in case of natural disasters like the Maui wildfires. This comes after President Joe Biden signed a disaster declaration two days after the fire. And as a result, home loans that are federally backed are subject to forbearance protections. And what that means is that families who have a mortgage can request a forbearance if they are federally backed under the disaster declaration for about 90 days. And that can be extended to 12 months. But then after 12 months, you're back to paying your mortgage forbearance. So I spoke with Jeff Gilbreth, the executive director of Hawaii Community Lending, the organization reached out to 51 mortgage servicers locally and nationally, and um, they reached out so they can follow federal guidance on offering mortgage forbearance for Maui residents impacted by those fires, but out of 51 banks, only six took the pledge. And that uh, they included American Savings Bank, Bank of Hawaii, First Hawaiian Bank, and Central Pacific Bank. I briefly spoke with Tim Sakahara, who is the spokesman of Central Pacific Bank, and he told me that, you know, they already have some type of uh, mortgage forbearance program in place. Um, but due to time constraints on the mortgage forbearance, state experts say it could only it could take up to three years to rebuild Lahaina. And this is what's causing some anxiety for some homeowners, especially those who lost their jobs in the fires.
3: The clock is running and there's likely going to need to be a policy solution at the state level. Um, There have been discussions in providing a foreclosure moratorium for families who have lost their homes um, or are temporarily displaced due to the the smoke and fire damage and the toxicity level that doesn't allow them to live in the home. It very well could come to uh, the state taking that type of action. I know that the legislature has, has floated the idea. Um, The reality is, is we're at least three years out till rebuilding. And so the families that you speak of are going to need, are going to need some relief and they're going to need assistance in ensuring that they can go beyond the 12 month forbearance period, whether that's a state policy action or otherwise it is something we need to have a real conversation about uh, in our community.
0: Yeah, and we saw uh, 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 earlier this month uh, Senator Angus McKelvey, you know, raising that question. I think he posed a a question and a letter, sent a letter to the president. You know, I know Senator Schatz was saying, well, we'll have to look to see what is the actual mechanism that we need in order to give people relief.
2: And I also
4: spoke to Senator Angus McKelvey, but uh, when he sent that letter, he's still waiting or a response from the president. He still hasn't gotten that yet. And along with him and Maui attorney Lance Collins, they've both been sounding the alarms on the issue of the mortgage forbearance. And the issue with that mortgage forbearance is that it does not stop the accrual, uh, accrual of interest. The entire amount that was in the forbearance will be due and owed at the end of the forbearance period. So let's say you have... Uh, a 3 months pause, you're going to have to owe that all back in full. And this is something that uh, Lahaina resident Chester Valencia said he is experiencing or will be experiencing. Uh, his home was completely destroyed by the uh, August 8th wildfire, and he just purchased that home in 2019. It was a perfect fit for him and his family, including their young pit bull. Um, and when it was destroyed, the only thing that was recognizable was his mailbox and about four chairs that were still standing, but they're charred. And uh, he has a temporary pause on his monthly payment on his home until January. And until then he will decide whether he needs to extend it or repay the months that he didn't pay.
3: When you hear something said, okay, we're going to not let you pay for your mortgage and whatnot, everyone automatically thinks like, okay, we have three months free. And it doesn't really work that way. You just don't have to front the money for three months, but the fourth month when you need to go back and pay, you will have to pay all four months in advance.
0: You know, and, and there's also some families that own a couple of properties. So we're not just talking one mortgage, we're talking several. You know, and then if they had, let's say, renters in there and, you know, you don't have income coming, it's just, oh, my gosh, it just compounds.
4: It's a stressful time. And I have friends who are also homeowners and it's not it's not cheap. Um, and especially um, you're stuck with a mortgage for a home that no longer exists. That's true in a sense. But also Chester told me that's that's not true because you're still paying for the land. So he's still hopeful that one day his house will rebuild and he could still live in that dream home with him and his family but Chester pays about $3,100 a month on his mortgage so multiply that for, by four he'll he will owe more than $12,000 at the end of the forbearance period um, that's if um, he'll make that decision in January but Maui uh, attorney Lance Collins had sent a letter to the governor's office requesting the um requesting uh, a a uh, a deferment for three years. And what a deferment means is no interest accrues during the deferment period, and that payment just resumes after the end of that period. Um, Lance was traveling out of the country during the time of this story, but... Um, um, but he told me in an email that the purpose of a three-year general deferment is and this suspension of the state foreclosure law is to allow Lahaina owners to the opportunity to decide what their financial decisions will be on their own time. And also tying it back to uh, State Senator Angus McKelvey, he also lost his home in the fire, but he was just renting. Uh, he sent a letter to President Joe Biden requesting for a mortgage abatement program, something similar to the one that was in place during the pandemic. However, he still hasn't received a response yet. And the worst case scenario is that people will be forced to sell and leave Lahaina, that's according to Angus McKelvey. Um, There has also been talks within the Hawaii legislature on how to address this issue.
3: It's just the thing that really is horrible is we're not in session now. So much more could be done in moving if we were in session, but we're pretty much relying upon the executive branch to carry us until, you know, we get into session. But we have to look at this. The other issue that's popping up is the setback issue. A lot of these homes, especially in La Luna, where the old plantation homes were built before the setbacks were adopted. Now they're gone. If they're adopted, people may not be able to rebuild to what they had before. And I brought this up to the, to, you know, to the, to the county partners and such. It's like this is, these are all the issues that are popping up we need to address now across many spectrums and many fields. But the end result is the same, the economic meltdown of the island and a deepening of economic conditions and poverty and the pressure on families is added because we have the holidays around the corner.
0: Yeah, very, very stressful time. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking to Cassie Ordonio about mortgages in Maui. Uh, Maui's Maui's housing challenges remain. And this morning, the State Attorney General put out a call to Maui renters. If your landlord is illegally raising rent or threatening eviction for failure to pay rent, taxes, or fees, the office wants to know about it. You can report it at hawaiiag at Mm hawaii.gov. Reality Check with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at how cultural monitors are playing a part in the cleanup in the aftermath of the Maui wildfires. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us today. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so you were out bright and early the other day. Uh, Your your story has a picture of these uh, uh, cultural monitors right before they went out in the field.
5: Actually, the picture is mostly uh, EPA um, and EPA contractors. They, they wouldn't actually let me take pictures of the pule because um, I guess that's not considered proper. So, um, But anyway, yeah, I did go up there on Saturday morning. Uh, the workday starts at around 7 a.m. Um, and they have a safety briefing, um, and then they do pule, uh, and that's led by, you know, local um people from Lahaina who are now working on this task, um, and then they, they go out and they start their day um, basically combing through the rubble um, that was left behind by the August 8th wildfire.
0: And so there's this a, a group, uh, Na Aikane O Maui, uh, that is working um, with the EPA on this?
5: Yeah, they're one of the subcontractors, um, but they are leading the, the cultural monitoring efforts um, and they've been working with EPA for a few weeks now. Um, there's at least 20 of them. And um, pretty soon when the Army Corps of Engineers um, starts uh, phase two of the cleanup, uh, they will also be working with the Corps. And um, the Corps has recently um, awarded a $19 million contract uh, to a firm in Honolulu, AEPAC. Um, that will employ the the cultural monitors. Um, They're actually hiring right now. So, you know, if if people want to work on this, um, they can contact that company. Um, And uh, basically, yeah, the purpose is to ensure that when the cleanup happens, uh, that it's done respectfully. Um, As you know, Lahaina was a very multicultural uh, area, um, and it has a deep history with the Native Hawaiian community. It used to be the capital of the Kingdom of Hawaii. So there's just a lot of um, cultural artifacts and archaeological items that, um, you know, unfortunately lay in ruins. Um, and as the cleanup continues, uh, the cultural monitors are there to ensure that those objects are um, treated respectfully and um you know, that, that nothing is, is um, taken away that shouldn't be taken away and, and, uh, and things of that nature. And it's also to kind of give a little bit of comfort to the families who lost their homes, um, that there are culturally trained eyes that are, are there on site to make sure that things happen in the most sensitive and respectful way possible.
0: Yeah, so these monitors bring sensitivity to the scene, Uh, you know, they bring uh, knowledge, uh, but they've also probably got to get trained just to make sure that they stay safe, too, because they're poking around and stuff that's maybe a little hazardous.
5: Very hazardous. Uh, It's a very, very toxic area. Um, You know, many of the EPA folks that are on scene are from the Superfund division. Uh, Superfund sites are some of the most toxic places, um, on earth. Um, so yes, the cultural monitors, they do get hazmat, um, health and safety training and, um, you know, they're, they're taught to, um, you know, keep themselves safe to the maximum extent possible. Um, when I was there on Saturday during the briefing, um, an EPA official mentioned that the day before, um, when they went into one of these burn parcels, they encountered over 40,000 rounds of ammunition, um, and there's other hazards, you know, like lithium-ion batteries that can explode or, or Tesla power walls. You know, there's there's definitely a lot of hazardous material. So, um, you know, EPA always goes in first and to make sure that there's nothing that's obviously flammable. Um, but the, the cultural monitors are trained to you know if they spot something that looks like it could be very dangerous to alert EPA and they bring in their unexploded ordinance um, people to ensure that you know the, the item is handled properly
0: and you know it's just some of the comments on your article I mean folks are appreciative that you know that the EPA and the feds are sensitive to the cultural issues
5: Yes, um, the the incident commander of EPA actually told me he's um, engaged to a Native Hawaiian woman, and it was through that family connection that he, you know, realized that, that you know in in doing this cleanup that they really needed to have cultural monitors in place um, because of the history. Of the area and just how multicultural it is. Um, it's not like um, anywhere else. And so it's a very, very different um, type of cleanup that is, that is happening.
0: Yeah, really so, yeah. interesting. But thank you so much, Paula. You bet. Take care. That was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. Read her story at civilbeat.org.
2: Hello, this
0: is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One.
1: Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash
0: The arrests of four police officers for domestic violence this month made for some glaring headlines. It brings the total of cases to eight so far this year. That's what Honolulu's police chief told the police commission last week as we kicked off Domestic Violence Month. Domestic violence survivors and advocates turned out at the legislature Friday afternoon to draw attention to the problem in our community. The Conversations with Lillian Song sat down with Angelina Mercado. She's the executive director for the Hawaii State Coalition Against Domestic Violence.
2: She was talking about the latest statistics. It is very concerning when law enforcement is involved in domestic violence themselves because every single one of our programs has something on our website that says, in the case of an emergency, call 911. So law enforcement are first responders in the systemic response to domestic violence. So for us, it is definitely very concerning. So we are, you know, we're very empathetic to the survivors who have disclosed. And to a certain extent, it's good to see that they are being arrested and they are being addressed within the department. I don't think that you'll probably ever see any, you know, domestic violence happens in every single part of our community regardless of your race, your gender, your sexual identity, and your economic situation and your religious affiliation. And so we know it's going to happen in places like the police department, probably in other emergency response agencies throughout the state as well. But when we as a community say call 911 first, when it's an emergent situation, we take it seriously when you see it within HPD. And it's something that we will definitely keep an eye on and be in communication with Chief Logan. Hmm. Define for our listeners domestic violence. The most important thing that people need to know is that it's actually a pattern of abuse, and central to that is uh, power and control. So it's when one partner has power and control over another person, and so that that person loses a sense of autonomy. So that means that they can't, they don't feel free or really afraid for their life to make decisions for themselves, like they may not be able to go to work, or they may have to check with their partner which jobs they can have, which friends they may have, and when they can go and see those friends and family members. So it's a pattern uh, that's not just physical. That's really important for people to know that these coercive tactics manifest themselves this way in behaviors.
6: According to the Centers for Disease Control... 34.7% 34.7% of women, 24.1% of men in Hawaii have experienced domestic violence in their lifetime.
2: Yeah. It's very likely that you know someone who has experienced intimate partner violence, and this is how we define it when it's an intimate relationship. They just may not have told you about it, or they may not even realize that this, is, this pattern of behavior is abusive because we have come in our communities to normalize this type of behavior.
6: Very important for us to think about that normalization. Yeah. So, how can we not be complacent and allow this to continue?
2: When we are talking to people who have experienced abuse and they disclose that to you or to somebody that they may know, the first thing that we want to do is believe them. So, we want to destigmatize the disclosure of this information. Um, You know, as in our community, we want to shift away the question from why didn't you just leave as if that is the easiest thing that you could possibly do when statistically it is the most dangerous time for you to leave an abusive relationship. Because when we're thinking about power and control, if that person has power and control over you, losing that power and control, it is the most dangerous time. So the data show that it takes about seven attempts for somebody to leave, successfully leave an abusive relationship. And we really should start looking at what are the barriers that keep people from leaving? And when we look at our state and how expensive it historically has been, even more so with inflation, the housing crisis that we are all experiencing we need to start looking at so many of those intersections in our community, in our state. But what makes a person stay in an abusive relationship? It often is tied to economics, it is tied to housing. Often people really just want the abuse to end. Um, one of the biggest issues that our advocates keep telling us about is that they are unable to find housing for survivors, even after their stay at the emergency shelter has ended. Another way that our domestic violence advocates help is that they work with survivors who are seeking protection orders. So they work with them and they go through the protection order petition. They can go with them and accompany them to court so that they have somebody who's a trusted third party there who's able to be with them and again, another place that is often intimidating—courts—for mm-hmm. us are just another, another um, example of power and control dynamics, right. right? And so, it's comforting to have an advocate. Many advocates, and some of the best advocates, are actually survivors themselves. So, it's comforting to have an advocate there, uh, be there. Some of our programs are fortunate to be able to provide legal services as well and legal representation. Many of our survivors, after they have fled a domestic violence situation, find themselves uh, going through a divorce or a pretty contentious custody battle with their abusive partner. So some of our programs, like Domestic Violence Action Center and Legal Aid, may be available to provide legal services. Yeah. So what I'm really hearing is that you're not alone in this. You're not. And I really want people to be able to understand how to respond when people talk about domestic violence, when people may disclose to them that they may be in an abusive relationship or a partner. We have these resources on our website at the Hawaii State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. That is hscadv.org. And we have it in nine other languages and ASL, as well as information about what a healthy relationship looks like. But especially when we talk about disclosures of domestic violence, because we know that we're going to see more of them, It's about having an empathetic approach. It's about believing survivors. It's about not trying to be nosy and getting more information. But it's also about how to respect their privacy while also connecting them to resources and giving them the choice of when and how they seek that information and those resources. Because they may not be ready, but when they are, know that we're here and available for them. Another merging issue that we're really concerned about in this state is there is a case before the Supreme Court, U.S. versus Rahimi. Very much the way the Bruin case had an impact last year, and uh, affected a change in our in our gun laws in the state. We're concerned about this. Uh, it will there will be a decision by the Supreme Court in mid 2024. But what it essentially does is addresses the states or will potentially have the impact of determining whether the state can keep firearms away from those who are subject to a protection order. So to make that clear, if you have a domestic violence protection order against you right now, you are prohibited from having access to firearms and or ammunition. If you've been convicted of a domestic violence crime, that same prohibition applies to you. The Supreme Court decision in this Rahimi case could impact our state laws because it is determining whether that is against the Second Amendment.
6: We mm. shared there's a correlation of domestic violence and natural disasters. Yeah, and for us, this is an area of concern in the aftermath of Maui, the Lahaina wildfires. What is being done for that community?
2: So we're we're very concerned with what is happening to survivors. On Maui, one of the biggest issues that we're really concerned about. And it's some of those same scenarios of isolation, lack of resources, lack of access to your support system um, that often play into a heightened situation of intimate partner violence when you have a natural disaster. And what we know happened in Maui are those very same things. And we know that our community in Maui was ravaged, lack of housing, food, water, um, other natural resources have been eradicated essentially by these wildfires. So now we see a large portion of that community being affected by this and now we know And we're especially concerned about survivors because of all of our counties, the highest prevalence by county for domestic violence is actually Maui County. So in the most recent data that we have from the State Department of Health is at 17.8% prevalence of domestic violence in Maui County. So we're very concerned about making sure that our survivors are not being displaced along with the Maui fire survivors as well. So the housing crisis is particularly concerning in Maui. Regular folks cannot find housing because of their situation. We have seen over 7,000 people in those hotels. We know so many of them are survivors of domestic violence. And yet we know because of the state of the crisis in Maui, they're not ready yet to report. They may be trauma bonding. They are still dealing with trying to get housing, access to their documentation, find schools for their children, find work if they were displaced from work. Mm. So they may not even be ready to deal with the intimate partner violence that they are dealing with. So we as a community have to be there for them. That means that our programs need to continue to be well-funded. That means that our crisis workers, whether they are with the American Red Cross, with FEMA, and our mental health professionals who are being so generous on the ground, helping the entire community deal with this, are also prepared to understand how to deal with those who may be experiencing intimate partner violence, Mm -hmm. because it's a different strategy for how you even talk and approach them than somebody who's just experiencing the trauma and the tragedy of the fires. That was Angelina Mercado of the Hawaii State
0: Coalition Against Domestic Violence talking with Atria's Lillian Song. We'll have links to support resources on the conversation page later today. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we learn about the cases of little fire ants on Oahu. It may surprise you. Do you have a fire ant story to share with us or maybe a question? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Find the conversation segments on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.